My name's Andy. We're in the middle of a teaching series. It's apologetics. Apologetics is where you understand a reason for the Christian faith. Uh, Twofold. One, for reassurance ourselves. uh, That it's not just some kind of comfort blanket. We're not doing a blind leap of faith when we trust in Jesus. The second element is we live in a world where there are many people around us who do not believe in Jesus. And lots of stumbling blocks that people have might be arguments. So in the first uh, week, we did uh, evolution, creation, and the Christian faith. Some people have stumbling blocks, given what different people's interpretations are there. We found out, if you're a Christian, you believe in the historical person of Jesus. You can hold Bible-believing views uh, on Genesis 1 and 2. Not one is the one true Christian position. Then last week, had Pastor Gregory teaching on the problem of evil. Pastorally, the message was there's typically something behind someone's query. They typically know someone who's suffering, so be very careful. Minister to that need as opposed to just give them a straight answer. But we found out from Gregory that the problem of evil, rather than proving that God doesn't exist, the problem of evil is actually much, much bigger without the Christian God. And that evil still exists. There's a reality of evil. But without God, it just becomes some subjective personal pressure. We know that's not the case. When I finished my message on uh, evolution, creation, and the Christian faith, I said, go to school. If you want to go to school on something, go to school on are the uh, Gospels historically trustworthy? Who did Jesus say he was and what evidence is there for the resurrection? Uh, Instead of go to school, just listen to today's message. I Realize it's no good giving a message and setting people up for something to research. Instead, I'd like to prove to you why you have very good reason to believe and follow Jesus Christ. And if you haven't yet chosen to follow him, I urge you to do so. Start with, I'm going to pray, and then we'll get into the message. Father God, thank you that you want to be known. Lord, thank you that you have given us a keen intellect. Lord, that we can examine things, we can consider things, Lord. Thank you that you give us the privilege of engaging with people, Lord, representing you. Father, I pray that you increase our knowledge of who you are, the trustworthiness of the Gospels, and the evidence for the resurrection. And I pray, Lord, you help us to believe in you more. I pray these things in your Son's name. Amen. So I grew up in a non-Christian home, 1976, in Cambridge, England. Uh, I'm not British, I'm English. People often say, are you British? No, I'm English. Uh, If you grew up in Cambridge, it's really post-Christian. Completely, uh, people view Christians as really weird or really stupid. Uh, They don't have any basis for this other than they don't really know any. Uh, Now, I grew up forming an opinion of Jesus that was based on two films. Uh, I didn't know this until I became a Christian, and I started thinking, where did my beliefs about Jesus come from? Those two films, you do not need to write this down, E.T., I wish I was joking, and Braveheart. Uh, I came to faith on the 11th of February, 2003, at an event that spoke about the historical trustworthiness of the Gospels and who Jesus said he was. That was called Christianity Explored. There's a very similar one called Alpha, and I've used a lot of the Alpha materials for the logic of the arguments today. And the first time when I was at that event, I was 
question, like, where, what are things forming my beliefs on? And as I was reflecting, it became quite clear that I had zero evidence, uh, zero reason to form my beliefs. My beliefs were, based on E.T., uh, when a different person comes into the world, you try and kill them. And I remember thinking, I wish Jesus had escaped like E.T. had. Oh, gosh. Uh, the other one was Braveheart. I don't like that film. It's really racist against the English. Uh, <laughs> really racist. I mean, I know we're bad, but that film really takes it to another level. Uh, it's in Braveheart. It's Mel Gibson's 13th century war epic about William Wallace and how he, just how he's better than the English. And in it, there's going to be a key battle where all of these different clans from Scotland are gathering towards William Wallace. He's decided to rebel against the unjust, disgusting, cruel English rule. And people are joining him. And when he's there, his legend had been spreading. And it's the Battle of Stirling Bridge. This is the text. <laughs> Can't do a Scottish accent, but I'm going to try. William, sons of Scotland, <laughs> dear me. If you're from England, you'll know that was actually Northern Irish. I'm just going to speak in English. Sons of Scotland, I am William Wallace. Short soldier <laughs> said this. William Wallace is seven feet tall. William said, yes, I've heard. Kills men by the hundreds. And if he were here now, he'd consume the English with fireballs from his eyes and bolts of lightning from his, I think donkey is the other word there, uh, I am William Wallace, and I see before me an army of my countrymen here in defiance of tyranny. You have come to fight as free men, and free men you are. What would you do without freedom? Will you fight? I remember reflecting as that scene was happening, like, yeah, that's probably what happened to Jesus. These kind of mythical stories had happened about this person. And just like William Wallace wasn't seven feet tall, maybe we just really exaggerated who Jesus was. I thought probably there's some kind of oral tradition, so people shared the stories, but over time they just got blown out of all proportion. Eventually someone wrote them down. I had no idea that they were actually historically trustworthy. Uh, if you play, hands up if you play the telephone game. Hands up if you want to play it with me. I, s I destroy that game. I am so deaf. It's just, you will end up shouting what it is. Everyone will hear, and I still won't hear. Uh, I had imagined that the Gospels were some kind of telephone game gone wrong over the centuries. In fact, when I became a Christian, I had worked in Holland and Germany for different times. A Dutch guy sat me down. I was reading my Bible. He goes, Andy, you just need to understand this. Like, it's a good thing to live by, but it's all myths and legends. Like, don't get caught up in this. And it seems like a strange thing to say, but that's the commonly held view in Europe against, uh, for people who don't know who Jesus is. So our first section is, are the, is the New Testament historically trustworthy? Yes. Second section, no. Uh, due to the science of textual criticism, we know very accurately what the New Testament writers wrote. Now, textual criticism, it was very painful for me at seminary. Uh, what You have a Greek book called the Nestle Aland uh, Bible. It's all in Greek, and under every different bit of Greek, 
there's which manuscripts it came from and where in different libraries around the world those bits of manuscripts are. It was exhausting if you had to write a paper on it. But in essence of textual criticism, the shorter the time span from when the original manuscript was written, now bear in mind it's written on papyrus. Papyrus is not dura uh, really durable. So the original one, you think it was written on a certain date. When you have fragments and then whole copies, the less time there is between when it was written and your first copy, the more reliable it is. At the same point, the more copies you have, the more reliable it is. And contrary to my belief, which was based on zero research, like the telephone game has not gone off. It wasn't even an oral tradition. Very early on, the gospel writers wrote the gospels. In fact, the professor F.F. F. Bruce, in his research book, The New Testament Documents, are they reliable? He says that compared to any document in antiquity, there is a mind-blowing wealth to show that the New Testament documents are reliable. He mentions a few different books from a similar time frame, which scholars would say, yes, they are historically trustworthy. He says Caesar's book, The Gallic War, was written between 58 to 50 BC. We have nine or ten copies uh, in existence at the moment, and the oldest text was written 950 years after the actual events. Livy's book, The History of Rome, considered historically trustworthy. Uh, we have 20 copies. It was written between 59 BC and AD 17. And again, the first copy that we have, or partial copy, is 900 AD. So 900 years before we have any kind of textual proof. And it's not even a complete copy. Tacitus wrote a book called History. Uh, histories, they were written in AD 100. The first copy we have is from 1100. This huge gap of 1,200 years. Compare this to the New Testament, uh, written from AD 40 to uh, AD 100, just depending on which book. The oldest available manuscript we have was written 30 years after it started. There's a text called the St. John's Papyrus, and it's 30 years, around AD 60, uh, 30 years after that gospel was written. The first full copy we have is from AD 350 onwards. And there are, at AD 350 onwards, we have 5,000 manuscripts in Greek, around 10,000 in Latin, around 9,300 in other languages. See that huge wealth. So if you're going to say something from antiquity is historically trustworthy, you have to come to the conclusion that the Gospels are. The best way I can describe it, imagine if you had a jigsaw box. It's made of papyrus. It has an image on it. Over time, uh, that image may go on that jigsaw box. The texts that we have are almost like lots of different bits of the jigsaw, and you get a complete picture. And then you get thousands of reproductions, and you can see, yes, that's what the original picture was. They say it's as accurate as pi is when you say 3.14. So I watched, was watching uh, Ninja, American Ninja Warrior Junior yesterday. 
trying to get my kids to do some exercise. Uh, and we're watching it, and this girl just starts, one of her claims to fame was how many numbers into pi that she knows. It went on and on and on, on like 40 or 50. But the reality is, it's still fair to say, no, the number pi is 3.14. We can say with historical accuracy that the Gospels that we have are like 3.14. Any like discrepancies that there are are largely just typos when it's been transcribed from one to another. But no one verse in the Bible, no one verse in the New Testament contains a complete doctrine. So there's nothing uh, in any of those variances that go against any Christian doctrines. I remember hearing when I uh, was at this event in 2003, a case of David Irvin. He had been in the news a lot in England. He's now been proven not to be a historian, but a racist and an anti-Semite. Uh, he was, had a real passion in the Second World War, specifically in Nazi Germany. He'd write very detailed histories. And understandably, people found that very, very offensive. Remember a Jewish lobby within America? It was headed by uh, the American historian Deborah Leakstadt. Uh, she wrote a piece about how he's just denying history. And he went straight at it. He took her and Penguin Books to court over defamation because uh, she was saying he's made up history. What actually happened in the courtroom was he was proved to be a Holocaust denier and that the Holocaust actually happened. Uh, one of the most compelling pieces of evidence that Deborah Leakstadt did was she brought people who had been in concentration camps. She brought them in and they said, yes, I was there. Yes, I saw people being gassed. Yes, I lost loved ones. And it's such compelling that he couldn't make it up. And so the court said this about him. He lost the case and it said uh, he's an active Holocaust denier, he's an anti-Semite and a racist who, for his own ideological reasons, persistently and deliberately misrepresented and manipulated historical evidence. Now this court case was in 1996. 51 years after the end of World War I, when the, uh, people were freed from the concentration camps. And in 51 years, people were still alive and could say, no, that's made up history, I was there. And it's very difficult to get David Irvin's books now. He's not considered a reliable historian. Think of what the case is for the New Testament Gospels, written 30 years after the event. Lots of people were still alive. If it was made up stuff, it'd be very easy to say, no, that didn't happen. Think how many people are described in the books. Think of all the events that are described in the books. It's really easy. Uh, a Greek culture, a Greek empire, a Roman empire, a Jewish culture, all did not want this kind of strange cult of Christ following to survive. It'd be very easy just to rubbish all these reports. And yet they didn't, because the reality is they're historically trustworthy. One final piece of information, there's lots of evidence for the historical person of Jesus outside the Gospels. One of them, a Jewish historian called Josephus, in AD 37, he wrote this. Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him 
uh, both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. Jesus was a historical person, and the Gospels are historically trustworthy. Now, I've formed my belief system on E.T. and Braveheart, but let's actually see what the Gospels say about Jesus. In fact, let's actually look at what Jesus says about himself. Something remarkable about Jesus is that whenever he taught, he pointed to himself. Now, normally religious leaders would say, no, not me, don't look at me, look at God. Jesus was continually pointing to himself. Think about that for a moment. Jesus was considered the most humble and self-effacing person that has ever lived. But he was saying, as I point you to God, he was pointing them to him. In John 14, 6, he says in essence, like, if you want a relationship with God, you need to come to me. It's through a relationship with Jesus that we encounter God. In Matthew 10, 40, Jesus says, uh, to receive Jesus, he said, to receive me is to receive God. In Mark 9, 37, the Gospels are biographies of Jesus' life, by the way. He says, if you welcome him, you're welcoming God. In John uh, 14.9, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen God. Now, you'd think it was reasonable to assume that no one really knows what God looks like. But Jesus, majority of his teaching was, if you want to know what God looks like, look at me. Uh, there are many indirect claims uh, that Jesus made. So he said, I have these abilities. And by saying that he had these abilities... It also pointed to the fact that he was God. He said he was able to forgive sins. On one occasion, there's a man who's paralyzed. His friends lower uh, him through roof to Jesus. And Jesus said, son, your sins are forgiven. And the religious leader's reaction, it shows they knew exactly what Jesus meant by saying that. He said, why does he talk like that? Only God can forgive sins. He is blaspheming. But then Jesus, to prove that he had that authority, then makes the man walk. Another time, he claimed that one day he'd return to judge the world. You can see this in Matthew 25. Listen to this for what would potentially be mind-blowing arrogance if it hadn't been true. He said he'd return and sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations would be gathered before him, and he'd pass judgment on them. Jesus said that he would be the one who decides what happens to every one of us at the end of time. Imagine for a moment someone saying that outside a Starbucks in Wheaton. You would not be drawn to them. You'd not be thinking, wow, this is a humble person. I think they're God. It, it, would, it would be very, very strange. Uh, then Jesus specifically, just in case people were in doubt, he'd been pointing to himself. He says, I can forgive sins. I'm coming back to judge the world. And then he just gives some clear, like, it, it's me. Here are some of his direct claims. So under trial, before crucifixion, he's under trial for blasphemy, for claiming to be God. That's a clue. Uh, Jesus was asked, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? Jesus replied, I am. 
and you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. That's in Mark 14. Jesus was clearly uh, describing himself as the Son of Man, God in the flesh. On another occasion, John 10, uh, Jesus is being stoned, and he asks them, why are you stoning me? And the gospel account, which is historically trustworthy, says that the crowd replies, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Then even after Jesus has resurrected, one of his disciples, Thomas, was still doubting him. But when he realized it was Jesus, he knelt down before him and said, my Lord, my God. And Jesus didn't say, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't say, my God, that's not me. Don't, don't do that. He said, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So in fact, Thomas had been doubting. Jesus goes back at him. Instead of saying, don't call me God, he says, Thomas, you've been so slow to get the point. Now, if someone makes claims like these, uh, they have to be tested. From my teenage years, I met many people who thought they were uh, Jim Morrison reincarnated. Uh, so if someone makes some claims about being some kind of special person, they need to be tested. Now, a person can be sincere. They can sincerely think uh, they are the Pope. They could sincerely think they're someone like Kurt Cobain back from the dead. But you can be sincerely wrong. Now, one of the key measures uh, for psychiatric inpatients uh, is if you believe you have special powers. Like, dif different people have different distortions on reality. But if asked the question, do you have any special powers, if someone answers that yes, they do, the psychiatrist knows that they're actually trying to be delusional at that point. So let's look at what Jesus is. He claimed that he was the unique son of God, God made flesh. This gives us three possibilities. You may have heard these before. When I first heard them, it blew my mind. The first is that Jesus was just making untrue claims, completely that he was not God in the flesh. Now, if this is the case, there are two options if the claims were untrue. One is that he knew it, so he was lying. And he was deliberately leading people away from God. That would mean that he is evil. The other one would mean that he was completely delusional. He was sincere, but he was being sincerely wrong. In fact, he was insane. The third possibility, there's only three logical ones, though. They're wrong. He's lying because he knows it. Or he's deluded because he doesn't know it. Or it's true. Uh, the theologian C.S. Lewis says this, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be insane or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice, he writes. Either Jesus was and is the son of God or else he was insane or evil. He continues to say, let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense. He's English, 
uh, let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. Jesus has not left that open to us. He did not intend it. My view of Jesus before I did an examination of him was that he was a healer, a teacher, and we treated him really badly. There's no basis for that in the Gospels. There is no basis for that in anything that Jesus said. Here's some other evidence. So Jesus points to himself, shows that he is the son of God, God in the flesh. Uh, He makes some indirect claims like, I can forgive sins. I'm coming back to judge the world. He then makes some very specific direct claims. And here are some other evidence that I think if you look at in the whole with all of the evidence, affirms that he was who he said he was. Jesus is teaching. It's widely regarded to be the best teaching that has ever come off a human's lips. The Sermon on the Mount, he says, love your enemies. No teacher had ever said that before. Even in this country, so many of the rules are based on some of the things that Jesus taught. Jesus' words. He himself said that the miracles that he performed were evidence, and this is his quote, that the Father is in me and I in the Father. That's John 10, 38. His character. This is Jesus' character. Even non-Christians like Gandhi was overwhelmingly impressed by his character. Martin Luther King, his hero was Jesus. He was completely motivated to pursue justice, to pursue a ministry of reconciliation because of Jesus. So think about how confusing that is. Great teaching, does miracles, amazing character. At the same time as saying, I am God. He was, listen to these like, uh, what's the word? Paradoxes. He exemplified supreme unselfishness, but never pity. Humility, but not weakness. Joy, but never at someone else's expense. Kindness, but not indulgence. He was a person in whom his enemies could find no fault. When he's being tried, it was because he claimed to be the son of God. But when they're like, is there other stuff that he's done? No one could find fault with him. Even his closest friends, they were saying, this man was without sin. And when we're under extreme pressure or pain, uh, some of our learned behaviors that are acceptable and nice and help us get around the world, when we're under extreme pressure and pain, those kind of get swept aside and the fault lines in our character come up. Think about it. If someone just slaps you around the face at a gas station, you might not have the most measured response. Now, Jesus, when he is being tortured, as he's hanging on the cross, this is the opportunity for the fault lines of his character to come out. And he says these words in Luke 23, 34. He says, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. Friends, these are not the words of someone who is evil. These are not the words of someone who is mentally imbalanced. And the final bit of the other evidence that Jesus is who he said he was is his fulfillment 
of Old Testament prophecy. Jesus fulfilled over 300 different prophecies about the Messiah, spoken by different voices over a period of 500 years. 29 major prophecies were fulfilled the day he died. Now, someone could say, well, he's an imposter, and he would try and fulfill those. Maybe. But there's some he had no option. He couldn't manipulate at all, such as the place of his birth and death, which is prophesied in Micah 5.2, and the manner of his death in Isaiah 53. So, New Testament gospels historically trustworthy. What does Jesus, who does Jesus say he is? He says, I'm God. And he backs it up all over the place. Finally, the most important thing, the resurrection. If you do not believe in the resurrection, I'm sorry, but you're not a Christ follower. In England, in the postmodern world, you sometimes get religious leaders that try and uh, take sides with humanists. And so they'll say, yeah, some of the miracles didn't happen. I remember listening to the radio back when I could hear, and a guy, a pastor from a church in Cambridge said, yeah, the resurrection didn't happen. No one really believes that. But that dude was not a Christian. It, either the resurrection happened or it didn't. If it did happen, uh, it's going to change everything. If it didn't happen, we're completely done. Uh, the Apostle Paul says this, Romans 10, 9. If you confess that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from death, you'll be saved. For it's by faith that we're put right with God. It's by our confession that we are saved. Romans 10, 9 and 10 is often used as, is someone saved or not? And it says it's got the resurrection there. Paul, again, in writing to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 15 says this. And here, how critical the resurrection is. Uh, if you believe it, Everything changes. If, you, uh, if it didn't happen, the Christian should be pitied. He says this. Now, since our message is that Christ has been raised from death, how can some of you say that the dead will not be raised to life? If that is true, it means that Christ was not raised. And if Christ had not been raised from death, then we have nothing to preach and you have nothing to believe. More than that. We're shown to be lying about God because we said that he raised Christ from death. But if it is true that the dead are not raised to life, then he did not raise Christ. For if the dead are not raised, neither has Christ been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then, you, raised, then your faith is a delusion and you are still lost in your sins. We also mean that believers in Christ who have died are lost. If our hope in Christ is good for this life only and no more, then we deserve more pity than anyone else in all the world. But the truth is that Christ has been raised from death as the guarantee that those who sleep in death will also be raised. The Apostle Paul, smack bang, in the middle of the New Testament, saying it's all about the resurrection. Christ couldn't raise himself. Why on earth would we believe in him to resurrect us in the next life? Uh, let's look at the evidence for the resurrection under three headings. First one is the empty tomb. Second one is his appearances, appearance to the disciples. And the third one is the immediate effect. The empty tomb. The empty tomb proposes that, yes, there was an empty tomb. 
But it wasn't because of a resurrection. It was because of some other means. One of those theories is called the swoon theory. This states that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. He merely swooned. They will argue that some of the liquid may be given to him, caused him to enter this kind of comatose state, and then he revived. Uh, But they're saying he was actually alive when he was in the tomb, and he recovered in there. Problems with this theory are multiple. One, the physical trauma of being flogged by Romans often caused death. Like the, the, the things they used, I didn't want to do it because I'm squeamish, but I was reading about it. It leaves the flesh shredded. It leaves nerves exposed. He would have been absolutely shredded. And then he was hung on a cross for six hours. Now, could a man who has somehow survived that be in a tomb and then pushed away a big stone, probably a ton and a half? And even if he had, and he limped towards his disciples, utterly broken, and he says, I am the resurrection, like that, you're not going to believe him. Secondly, I love this phrase, one job. Uh, The soldiers had one job, uh, to make sure Jesus was dead. If he was not dead, they could risk death themselves. They were really, really good at that one job. Now, they did not allow him to swoon. One of the things that they did, they pierced his side with a spear. It says this in John 19. They pierced his side with a spear bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. What's interesting is that this time in antiquity, people did not know about the medical thing that was happening. It was the separation of clot and serum. John, who wrote the gospel, had no knowledge of that. He was just giving some detail. And that proves when clot separates from serum that someone is dead. That's pretty compelling evidence that Jesus was dead when he came down from the cross, that he didn't recover in the tomb, push a giant stone away, and convince his disciples that he was the resurrection. The other argument with the empty tomb was say that Jesus' body was stolen. So they said, people of this argument would say, Jesus' disciples, they were devastated that he died. And they desperately wanted to validate their last three years. They desperately wanted to keep the memory of him alive. So they stole the body, And they just started a rumor. The disadvantage to this was that the tomb was guarded. Secondly, the disciples had all scattered. They were deeply depressed. Think of Jesus. He had denied Christ. Imagine how dejected he felt. And then Christ died on the cross. They weren't even expecting him to die. They weren't wanting him to die, despite how many times Jesus says it. Something extraordinary happened to Peter. After Christ had died on the cross, for him then to be able to preach with such passion and purpose that at Pentecost, 3,000 people came to faith. Like he wasn't willing himself from some kind of depression up into living this new life. If the resurrection really happened, that would explain like the whole massive transformation that happened in him. Now, some people, if someone had died, they might want to honor Christ's legacy. A lot of the disciples 
were tortured. A lot of the disciples were flogged. A lot of the disciples were stoned and killed for their beliefs. I don't know about you. My pain tolerance is low. I would have pretty early on gone, actually, guys, you're right, I made this up. But they were willing to go to death, all of them, for their beliefs. That just makes zero sense if the resurrection weren't true. And finally, uh, the least credible answer for the empty tomb is that the authorities stole the body. Uh, People put this out there. It makes zero sense on many levels. One, the authorities had no desire to prove that Jesus had been resurrected. They wanted to prove that he was just a man. They did not want Christianity to grow. They had no incentive to leave an empty tomb. They had the means and the resources, if he was dead, to take that body out of the tomb and display it to everyone. Next one is his resurrection appearances. So uh, arguments for an empty tomb do really not carry very much weight uh, with reason. His resurrection appearances. He did this, his, he appeared to his disciples on 11 different occasions over the course of six weeks. Now some people say, no, it was a hallucination. That doesn't make sense. A hallucination, by its very definition, is by one person, and it's a subjective alteration of reality from their viewpoint. You'd never get a whole load of people over a course of period of time having the same hallucination that Christ was risen. The Bible goes on to say that Jesus appeared many times. In fact, one time he appeared to over 500 people. Now think about the story of David Irving. It's very easy to discredit his manipulation of history by people coming out saying what he said, that's not true. This is what happened. If people wanted to squash the Gospels, which a lot of the powers that be wanted to do, they'd easily had people come out and say, no, we were there. I was one of those 500 people. None of that happened. John was running around with a sheet on himself very easy to refute. But Jesus, it says, could be touched. It's not a hallucination. He ate a piece of grilled fish. On another occasion, he cooked breakfast for his disciples. Also here that Jesus had long conversations with his followers, uh, teaching them things about the kingdom of God. Historical trustworthiness of the New Testament and Gospels. Jesus said that he is God. The resurrection is the biggest deal in Christianity. Is it, is it based In reality or not, empty tomb points to a resurrection. His resurrection appearances point to a resurrection as opposed to hallucination. And then finally, the immediate effect. What happened to the church after he died? So the disciples were willing to die for their beliefs. Not just that, though. There was an explosive, unstoppable growth of the church just like we'd expect if something like the resurrection had happened. It's one thing for people to keep a friend's memory alive and try and live it out. It's something completely different for people to be motivated beyond comprehension to spread the good news and for the church to explode in growth. Michael Green says this in his book. He says, the church, beginning from a handful of uneducated fishermen and tax gatherers, swept across the whole known world in the next 300 years. It's a perfectly amazing story of peaceful resolution 
that has no parallel in the history of the world. It came about because Christians were able to say to their inquirers, Jesus did not only die for you, he is alive. You can meet him and discover for yourself the reality we are talking about. And these people did, and they joined the church. And a church was born from that Easter break and spread everywhere. Friends, we have every reason to be confident uh, in our decision to follow Jesus. The Gospels are historically trustworthy. Jesus made many direct and indirect claims to be God. And he was willing to die for those claims. And that the resurrection happened. The most reasonable assumption that you can make is that it actually happened. All of the attempts to explain that it didn't happen carry very little credibility. I'm going to ask for the band to come back up. I'm going to pray twofold for today's message. One is if you've not yet put your faith and trust in Christ. I want you to know that not only did he die for you, that he is alive and you can encounter him and experience him in fullness. The second thing, though, as we go through a world where there's lots of suffering and difficulties and challenges, some of our belief can kind of be minimized. The Bible's fine with people doubting. There's doubt in Thomas when Christ resurrects. Some of the disciples doubted. You'd hope so. If something so miraculous happened, you'd be like, have I just seen that? But one of the things that we see is people say to Jesus, help my unbelief. So I'm going to pray for people here where there's a a feeling of not quite being so sure of their faith. Like life has been rough recently. There's been too much suffering going on in your circumstances around you. I'm going to pray for God to help your unbelief. And after I finish praying, I'm going to set up our response time. Father God, we know that you are risen. We know that you came to us in your person as Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for anyone in here who does not yet know you as Jesus, as their Lord and Savior. God, that you took the full penalty their sins deserve. That you have forgiven them. That you have power of resurrection life as you rose from the grave. God, I pray that person will put their faith and trust in you. Father, we live in a world that is so many influences that say don't believe in Christianity. Father, so many reasons that we form the basis of our beliefs of. Father, will you shine a light on that? Will you give us an assurance of our faith? And Father, will you help us believe? In Jesus' name, amen.